were the unprecedented lockdowns an attempt to resolve the virus or an attempt to enrich the ultra-elite? Was world leaders' announcement of a public health emergency based on 150 figures outside of China premature? Why does the booming stocks on the stock market not reflect the true nature of the economy? How was the Chinese model of response superior to that offered by the USA and Canada, and why are the economic impacts not quite as severe? On this week's Global Research NewsHour program, part five of our series on the corona crisis, we explore the consequences of the fight against the malignant virus on the larger picture and come to some frightening conclusions about the possible game plan. In our first half hour, we'll speak with Professor Michelle Chosodovsky about the social and economic implications of the fight against COVID for labor and small businesses. Then in our second half hour, Professor of Political Studies Radhika Desai talks to journalist Chris Cook about her seven-part series, What is to be Done? A Manifesto for Politics Amid Pandemic and Beyond. On this week's program, Coronavirus A Second Look, Part 5, Exposing Corporate Plunder and Hope for Political Change. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 23, 2020. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, and occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Indeed. China and Russia continue to be the boogeymen trotted out regularly to scare Americans. Last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's State Department issued a statement warning that, quote, some foreign governments such as those of the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation seek to exert influence over U.S. foreign policy through lobbyists, external experts, and think tanks, unquote. Why the statement was issued at this time, so close to elections, is unclear, though it is possibly an attempt to line up possible scapegoats if the electoral process does not produce results acceptable to whomever loses. In fact, Russia and China hardly find a place on the list of those who fund lobbyists and think tanks. Also of interest is another story about how Washington has chosen to interact with the world, one involving both enemy du jour, Iran, and Venezuela. It comes from the article, American Militarism Marches On, No Discussion or Media Coverage of Washington's War Against the World, by Philip Giraldi, posted October 22nd, originally published at Strategic Culture Foundation. 
In September, the Westphalian Times queried provincial health authorities across the country asking for the cycle thresholds. Here's what they got back. Ontario, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and Saskatchewan refused to share their PCR testing information. British Columbia said they did not have the capacity to retrieve this information. Alberta and New Brunswick failed to respond to our requests at all. Quebec health authorities, however, reported using a 45 PCR cycle threshold. Interesting, isn't it, that they also have so many cases. That comes from the article, Second Wave COVID-19 Cases with Face Masks, a Laboratory-Created Pandemic of PCR Testing, by John C.A. Mandley, posted October 22nd. Electoral suppression efforts have been bolstered by the 2013 Shelby County v. Holder Supreme Court decision that eviscerated the enforcement provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act was a concession granted by the administration of former President Lyndon B. Johnson in the aftermath of mass demonstrations in Alabama and other southern states. Yet, despite these setbacks, many African Americans and other oppressed people are determined to drive Trump from the White House and the Republican majority from the Senate. Events of the last seven months have provided impetus for not only electoral initiatives notwithstanding mass actions requiring independent organization aimed at mobilizing millions to end police brutality, and other forms of racist state violence. Although the Democratic Party is attempting to ride the tide of discontent and the yearning for a fundamental change, it will take the workers and oppressed utilizing their own organizational capacity to deliver a decisive defeat to the right wing. That comes from the article, Voter Suppression and Right-Wing Threats Fail to Keep Millions Away from the Polls. Many prepare for inevitable conflict over national elections outcome beginning on November 3rd by Abiyonmi Azikiwe, posted October 22nd. On Monday, Suriname and Guyana issued a joint statement reaffirming their commitment for cooperation in transportation infrastructure and other areas. However, competition between the two countries for the development of their deep water resources may also ensue, and Suriname's ties with Venezuela are certainly a concern to Guyana. We should be hearing a lot about Suriname in the near future on the back of these developments. The discovery of oil fields is not the only thing that is new for Suriname. The geopolitical scenario, too, has changed, with a so-called new Cold War going on in South America and the Caribbean between Russia, China, and Venezuela on one side, and the U.S., Colombia, and Brazil on the other. That comes from the article, Major Oil Discovery Puts Suriname in Global Spotlight Amid Venezuela Crisis and the U.S.-China Trade War, by Uriel Ariojo. Posted October 22nd, originally published at Infobricks. 
This coalition was certainly financed and coordinated by foreign agents who were also interested in the end of the Morales government, which was characterized by a strong anti-American socialist policy. Now, with Morales out of Bolivia, the scenario is different. The opposition's common enemy has already been defeated, so there is no reason for coalitions. There is yet another factor that cannot be ignored, the current lack of strategic coordination by the opposition. The capacity for foreign interference in Bolivian national politics has decreased significantly in recent months, mainly due to the social chaos in which the U.S. is inserted. The turmoil in the presidential elections undermines any form of strategy for American foreign policy. The priority of the Trump administration is to be re-elected. That of Democrats is to come to power in any case. None of them are really concerned about the next Bolivian president as long as Morales remains barred from running for president. That comes from the article, Bolivia. Arce's victory does not represent a return to Morales' national project. By Lucas Leros de Almeida, posted October 21st, originally published at Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Passing day, reports of the COVID virus infecting increasing numbers of people is only drawing dire consequences for average people. With record high numbers compelling political leaders, harsh and sensitive alike, to double down on scoff laws who will challenge any such orders, slapping them with increased fines. These include measures like not wearing a facial mask outside the home or holding an event like a political march, a funeral, a marriage, that contravenes public health. But as we have heard throughout this series so far, the virus is not nearly the health threat that's been portrayed by public health officials, political leaders, World Health Organization representatives, and the major media. Under the mask of inflated numbers stemming from the RT-PCR test, which more than likely mistakes the common cold for influenza and rising numbers of tests resulting in an exploding epidemic, massive measures are being taken that are thoroughly reshaping the lives of citizens in a move that far surpasses any of the chaos that would creep forward in the event we placed no control on the virus. Massive unemployment and even a threat to multiple businesses, small and medium-sized, are some of the consequences. Professor Michelle Chosodovsky had a major role in promoting the notion that the COVID crisis wasn't nearly as bad as the public voices were making it out to be. During an interview on Thursday, the 22nd, he took the time to elaborate on where the overall lockdowns of cities, countries, and ultimately economies would lead us. 
Michelle Chosodovsky is an award-winning author, professor of economics emeritus at the University of Ottawa, founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization in Montreal, and editor of Global Research. He has undertaken field research in Latin America, China, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Pacific, and has written extensively on the economies of developing countries with a focus on poverty and social inequality. He's also undertaken research in health economics, the government of Venezuela, and John Hopkins International Journal of Health Services. His recent research focuses on economic and social policy, health economics, geopolitics, and globalization. Here is Michel Chosodovsky. We have to put this crisis in, in perspective in, in the sense that uh, there are several stages, but I'll, I'll start with the economic dimensions of this crisis. And I'll start by analyzing what happened on March 11, because that's really when the lockdown started. Now, for most people, we said it was the lockdown but it's much more than that. It is the closure of 190 national economies. It's the closing down of the global economy, of the planet's economy. Now, uh, I'm an economist, but I think let's use our common sense. When you close down an economy nationally or globally, you undermine every single activity pertaining to production, goods and services, institutions, uh, of course, culture, education, museums. The economy is the reproduction of real life, and it's a capitalist economy. We're closing down the, cap the real economy, and those orders and instructions uh, have nothing to do with actually killing the virus okay you you don't kill the virus by closing down the economy it's an absurd proposition and we were led to believe that this virus this killer virus had required uh, a shock treatment at the level of the entire planet uh, leading to the closing down of economic activity and of course accompanied by because people are confined in their homes, there's no employment, uh, there's no going to work, uh, there's no transportation. Uh, previously, air travel had already been disrupted. That means that entire sectors of the national economy are literally in bankruptcy. But uh, if you look at this as a, an economic landscape, well, then you, you, you can see the small and medium-sized enterprises, you can see the local and, and, and regional enterprises. And the only people that actually benefit from this restructuring are the, is the financial establishment. And I can say that in the, from, from March onwards, the, the multi-billionaires increased their wealth uh, in the course of two months, those are estimates, something of the order of 20%. But if you look at the longer period, let's say from uh, beginning in January, 
through the financial crisis in February, we're talking about a massive redistribution of wealth. And as an economist, I can say, uh, first of all, this is engineered. It's not something which is spontaneous. This is a complex decision-making process. We won't have time to get into it. But when you close down the economy worldwide and you instruct governments, first of all, those governments have to obey orders. And then, and then on top of that, you lead people to believe that closing down the real economy, closing down institutions, closing down museums, schools, hospitals worldwide is solution to resolving the pandemic. Yeah, so you're saying that, uh, I mean, what the same time that there were massive uh, uh, degrees of unemployment and uh, small and moderate-sized businesses are, are closing down or uh, in, in, in big trouble, uh, at the same time, the wealthiest have seen like uh, billions of, of dollars uh, have gone into the pockets of the wealthiest corporations. So what, what, uh, you know, what, what kind of a, a move is that exactly? I mean, it, it seems like there's just been a, a massive rush from the, the, the poorer, and, and not even that poor, but the, the less wealthy to the very wealthy. Well, let, let me put it in, in some sort of historical perspective. Uh, um, and then you'll, we'll, we'll see the, 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 the evolution of this crisis. Uh, on January 30th, the World Health Organization um, implemented what was called a public health emergency of international concern. It, it wasn't the pandemic. It was an international emergency, public health emergency. Now, it just so happens that on the, on the 30th of January, there were only 83 cases outside China. And only seven of those cases were actually uh, linked to China, uh, were not linked to China. So that in effect, when you, you, you think in terms of, of numbers, 6.4 uh, 6 billion people, that's the population approximately of people outside China. And then you have only 83 cases that decision borders on ridicule. And, I, and, and those, those are the estimates from the sort of standard PCR test. I, I won't get into that. But what, we're, what we started with is major decisions based on ridiculously low numbers and where there was no evidence. In fact, there were only five cases in the United States, I believe three in Canada and so on. And, uh, and there they come up with this, this measure. And then the following day, uh, Donald Trump interrupts air travel with China. Trade, international trade is disrupted. So that's the first stage. Okay. Now well, the second. Yeah, that that I mean, you you have a, there's a picture there that shows all of the, uh, you know, there's a huge number of people for the uh, coronavirus, and in all the other places in the world. I mean, I think the next biggest was, uh, you know, Taiwan with 14, and then it was single digits, single digits in every other country and that is the signal that there's a massive we need to launch a public emergency you know that that seems right. a little bit strange but, uh, well there's there's another dimension to that when uh, the the second 
let's look at the evolution. January 30th, 31st, disruption of trade. In, in the, on the 20th of February, uh, the World um, Health Organization, uh, again, uh, the head of, of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, gives a press conference and he intimates that the situation is extremely serious. And he says, the windows are closing. We have to be, and we might have a pandemic. He actually, he doesn't confirm the pandemic, but he, he says, we might have, a, have to have a pandemic, which is a much more drastic, uh, you know, decision. And uh, what when that decision was taken, there were only 1,073 cases worldwide, of which more than 600 were on the Diamond Princess cruiser in Japanese territorial waters. So that in effect, there were only, if you're talking about representative samples, there were only 421 cases outside of China and outside of the territorial waters of Japan, okay, so to speak. And Diamond Princess was something in its own right, but it was part of the international statistics. 421, and then they say, this is really serious and it's a big emergency. And of course, the next day, the stock markets collapse. Now, we, we, uh, we can raise the issue of foreknowledge of that financial crash. It was engineered and, it, and people who had foreknowledge of, of, uh, of Dr. Tedros' statement that he was going to actually bring in the issue of a pandemic and so on and so forth, and then uncertainty of the markets, then the market crashes. Of course, the, the institutional speculators were there to make billions and billions of money, and that's where an initial transfer of wealth occurred. And people lost their savings. I mean, uh, you know, you 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 invested in a in a portfolio with your broker, you lose everything, and the stock market crash uh, in the week following that announcement is historic. It's devastating, and it already is devastating with regard to uh, major uh, corporations and also to. Uh, of course, the small, small and medium-sized enterprises, there's a collapse of stock markets, it's engineered. Uh, and uh, it's based on foreknowledge and inside information. We can't go into too much detail, but I can say that the, the enrichment is, and that redistribution of wealth occurred, uh, in, in fact, in several phases. But first, the stock market crash in the week that follows his statements, uh, Monday, uh, 24th of February. And then we move into March and we have, of course, the March, um, the March decision on the part of the WHO, which is the lockdown, is of a different nature to the financial crash. Okay? Well, you know, I'm wondering if the, uh, I mean, what is in the minds of the people who are, are engineering this? I mean, on the surface, in the media, they're saying, well, this is all an effort to deal with the virus. And of course, the actions are happening to benefit the, the very wealthy. But could this 
could the the idea of this this transfer, this debt de, 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 deprivation of the the lower class and the thrust of the upper class, could that be in fact the motive here that uh, is being uh, under the cover of well we're going to deal do something about the crisis or is it maybe just uh, uh, the circumstances that uh, that that reveal themselves? No, I, I, I think that this, uh, the financial crash was engineered and it was engineered to appropriate wealth. Uh, and uh, the, enrichment, the enrichment of these multi-billionaires is, is not linked to any kind of productive activity during those, the course of those two months. They increased their assets 20% in, in two months. Uh, in fact, it's much more than 20% when you look at the longer period. And that had to do with the with the engineering of, of a financial crash. And people who have studied this know that you can manipulate the stock market. You, you can speculate on a downturn and you can speculate on an upturn. And you have uh, and then you have statements that are made by the WHO which which trigger well, uh, these, the, these changes. Well what about I mean looking at a bit of a history like we've seen this sort of thing before in 1929, for example. I mean there, there was a crash there, but then a lot of that, the very wealthy ended up enriching themselves. And, and same thing in, in 2008, 2009. I mean, is this just the same thing only on a global level? Or are we- well, it, it, it's, it's of a different nature because first of all, the, the technologies, uh, the digital technologies of, of stock markets uh, are, are there. And, and it's, it, well, it, it, it's, there's, there was key legislation during the Clinton administration. It was the Financial Services Modernization Act. But again, that uh, uh, the, the, the appropriation of wealth is, is, is unprecedented, unprecedented in world history. The fear campaign has gone into overdrive. And then we, we since June, um, policymakers, politicians are saying, well, we have to be careful because there's a second wave. This is totally fabricated. The data doesn't support it. And now there's a new wave of, uh, you know, you have to have, wear the face mask and you have to uh, apply social distancing. Colleges and universities are closed down. Uh, people, family reunions are prohibited and so on and so forth. It varies from one country to the other, but it is absolutely devastating. And it is all based on a big lie. And first of all, the virus is not a killer virus. And we have official documents to prove that. It is, it is similar to seasonal influenza. It's a coronavirus. Uh, and so people are being lied to uh, regarding the, 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 you know, the, the nature of the virus, uh, which is portrayed as a killer virus. And then they also been, they also being misled as to the causality. They, they will be say, oh, it's the virus, which is destabilizing the economy. That's absolute nonsense. The, the virus is a virus. Doesn't, doesn't have any, any impact on economic variables. What is destroying the real economy are the decisions of people who are using uh, the propaganda campaign to justify the closing down of the economy with a view to saving lives. 
It's absolute nonsensical. Now, the, the lives which have been lost as a result of the closing down of the global economy are absolutely, well, it's devastation. In some areas, in some countries, it's famine. But again, it, it's mass unemployment, even in developed countries, mass unemployment, it's impacts on mental health, it's the paralysis of the healthcare system, so that there's more incidence of other, you know, other uh, morbidities such as cancer and, and, and heart attacks and so on. Uh, it freezes the entire, uh, what we call civil society. And let me conclude, it destroys people's lives and it destroys the nation state. And eventually what is happening is a structure whereby the financial establishment takes over the structures of government. David Rockefeller calls that global governance. And he, in fact, many years ago, he said, it's an alliance between bankers and intellectuals. This is a very complex process, but let us understand, use your common sense to say, closing down the economy is not a solution to waging or a public health campaign. That was Professor Emeritus of Economics and the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Last June marked the launch of a brand new initiative that promises not only to resolve the COVID affair, but also to revisit a string of initiatives intended to setting a new economic paradigm for the future. This dynamic, engineered actually years ago, is called the Great Reset. The main architect is Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive director of the World Economic Forum. To quote author Matthew Eric Kump, the IMF, World Bank, US, UK, and banking institutions were planning, quote, to take advantage of COVID-19 to shut down and reset the world economy under a new operating system entitled the Green New Deal, unquote. Their messaging reveals that the initiative will bring people together, including people from all walks of life who have the drive and the influence to make positive change. In January 2021, a unique twin conference is being held by the World Economic Forum to address the need to secure a more fair, sustainable, and resilient future and a new social contract centered on human dignity, social justice, and where societal progress does not fall behind economic development. The Strategic Intelligence Platform encompasses everything from capital markets to sustainable development to climate change to food and air pollution to feminism and LGBT rights, international trade and education, all the way to robotics, 5G, and artificial intelligence. The WEF was created in 1971 essentially as a club of the powerfully rich. It was founded as a European Management Forum 
essentially an NGO, but one which presumes itself having the ability to govern over the planet. So it's not exactly a world body deriving authority from a democratic representation of the planet. It's run by an elite. And as Peter Koenig wrote in a recent article, in the two months from mid-March to mid-May 2020, so far the worst corona crisis months, when the world was basically shut down, when unemployment and accompanying misery and famine soared to proportions never known in mankind's history, the billionaires in the U.S. have added another $434 billion to their wealth. What a lot of people worry about in this scenario is the insular, western-centric model. As Pepe Escobar wrote in a recent column, it sets up the WEO model of community of common interest against China's community of shared interest as embodied by that country's Belt and Road Initiative. It's hegemonic, meaning either all nations are on board or the world will have, in Schwab's words, more polarization, nationalism, racism, increased social unrest and conflicts. We're going to turn now to another economist speaking on the question of the aspects of the world that have shifted as a consequence of the COVID crisis. She claims there is no return to the reality pre-pandemic and that the Chinese approach was much better than the approach taken by the U.S. and Canada. She has written an acclaimed series for Canadian Dimension magazine entitled What is to be Done? A Manifesto for Politics Amid the Pandemic and Beyond. This is a seven-part series being released in segments since May. Issue 5 was released in October. A past guest on the Global Research News Hour, Radhika Desai is a scholar, educator, and editor. She is co-director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group based at the University of Manitoba, where she is also a professor of political studies. She is the author of a number of books, including Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization, and Empire, and Intellectuals and Socialism, Social Democrats and the Labour Party. The following interview, which highlighted her topic, was recorded by Chris Cook of CFUV's Guerrilla Radio. Welcome to the program, Radhika. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. It's good to uh, at least be spiritually in Victoria again. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, Radhika, you describe what we're seeing as an economic rather than financial crisis. Just what's the difference? Um, the difference is that uh, throughout the uh, neoliberal era, for the past 40 years from about 1980 onwards, we have experienced a series of financial crises. The most recent one was the 2008 uh, bubble bursting, you know, the housing uh, and credit bubbles. Before that, we had the dot-com bubble. Uh, throughout the 1990s, we had a whole series of financial crises hitting one economy after another. There was the tequila crisis, the Russian crisis, the East Asian financial crisis. There was even 
even a crisis of the Swedish krona. Um, and of course, going back to 1987 and the first of the big stock market and financial crashes that we witnessed uh, in the stock market crash of 1987. So throughout this period, we have had a series of financial crises. And the funny thing has been, or at least most people, uh, 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 well, uh, the, the, the funny thing has been that most of these crises have, of course, they have affected the economy, but they have not really brought uh, it to a standstill, largely because basically, even though in theory, the financial sector is supposed to support the productive economy. It had become progressively disengaged from the economy. It was not supporting the economy. So, and I'll come back to that point in a second. But to, to answer your question finally, is the, it's an economic crisis because this one arises from the economy. Why does it arise from the economy? It arises from the economy because 40 years of neoliberalism has created a financialized economy. You know, neoliberalism said, we, were, we are going to revive the productive economy. We are going to remove the dead hand of the state from the backs of entrepreneurs and capitalists and so on. And they are going to have the animal spirits restored. And then they are going to invest and everybody, everything will be fine and hunky-dory. The problem was the state, we're going to remove the state. That was the wrong diagnosis. In fact, if anything, the state was responsible for the golden age of growth that we saw between the 50s and the 70s. So removing the state actually merely further exacerbated the problem. Um, and instead, so instead of actually reviving the productive economy, all the deregulation, the low taxation, the cutbacks to the uh, to uh, social services, etc., all this was able to, uh, the deregulation of the labor market, all this was able to achieve was on the one hand an over inflated financial sector, which did not only did not help the productive economy, it was parasitical on the productive economy. So it's imagine it's a parasite living inside or on top of the productive economy. It is constantly draining away the substance of the productive economy. So the productive economy is getting emaciated over time. So well before the crisis hit, people were predicting that the productive economy itself, we are going to see a financial, sorry, not a financial crisis, but an economic crisis. Uh, it would be both demand-led because, you know, uh, financialization has led to more and more inequality. More and more inequality means that more and more money is going into the pockets of those who cannot spend it, do not spend it, whatever, because they have too much money. I mean, how much can you eat? How many cars can you have? How many houses can you have, etc. So they will not spend it and they invest it unproductively in the invested, quote unquote, in the financial markets. And the rest of the population has not enough money to create the demand. Right. So there's a demand shock as well as a supply shock, because through this entire period, the economy had become more and more reliant on a few limited types of labor, some very small sliver of highly well-paid labor of technologically highly qualified people. But for the rest, extremely low skill, low wage labor, largely in the service economy in the Western countries and manufacturing economies, which were increasingly being created outside the West. So this kind of extremely unstable economy with supply chain spread taught all over the world, this was not going to survive for very long. And what the pandemic did, it simply accelerated developments that were already in train. So that's my argument. That's why it's an economic crisis, because the crisis now arises from the economy, neither on the supply side nor on the demand side are things at anywhere near a sustainable level, and both need massive corrections.
Well, and I don't think this is something that's appreciated by most people. Uh, if I turn on the radio, the CBC reports the stock market's uh, daily doings as if that is a gauge of the health of the overall economy. The stock market is up. The stock market is down. And I'm supposed to be excited or emboldened or uh, encouraged if stocks are going up. But what we're seeing right now is as our actual economy is tanking, the stock market is hitting the stratosphere. How is that possible? Exactly. Now, th this is exactly the question we should be asking. And if you read, I mean, you're right. The CBC and most mass media are simply telling us the stock market is going up and somehow this is supposed to make us feel good. In reality, the stock, this is exactly a sign of just how much stock markets have taken leave of economic reality. Because if you look at um, the, uh, 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 the, 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 the share prices, they have nothing to do with the intrinsic value of the companies whose uh, share prices are shooting up, nothing to do with the dividends that they can pay, etc., etc. So all, the stock markets have nothing to, do the, nothing to do with the health of the economy. In fact, as I said, they are parasitical on, on the health of the economy. In fact, the only reason they are going up is that, and, and here's a very interesting part of the story, the, the Federal Reserve, the American uh, Central Bank, um, reacted to this crisis as it has reacted to every crisis since 1987 by unleashing a torrent of liquidity. And this is done essentially unleashing loads of money, not to give to you, me or the productive economy, but chiefly to give to the financial sector. Um, some of it now is going to the productive economy, but we can come back to that later. But chiefly, it is going to banks and financial institutions. So how, how is it going to them? Number one, it is going to them by keeping interest rates at absolutely rock bottom. They had been rock bottom, as you know, throughout this century. Um, and, uh, 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 and, you know, uh, uh, they, the Federal Reserve tried to raise it a little, little bit. Uh, in the last few years in order to sort of save up some ammunition, keep some powder dry in case there is another crisis and they have to lower it because if it's already at zero, where are you going to lower it, right? So they had done, so once again, rock, uh, so they, 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 they gave up all those increases that they had made and they brought interest rates down. And the second thing they've done uh, is what's known as quantitative easing. So what they do there is essentially they buy up the illiquid uh, Un essentially unsellable assets of banks, you know, so all the, you know, imagine there are various types of securities, the markets for all of them have tanked. What the Federal Reserve does is it steps in and buys them and gives good money in return. It doesn't buy them at the devalued price, it buys them at the, at the mark price. And then it gives them, the banks, good money in return. So the banks are once more flush with cash to continue their speculation in markets once again. So, uh, and this is also what creates what's called moral hazard. So essentially, when the going is good, the banks, financial institutions, and the extremely high net worth individuals, they make a lot of money and they keep all, keep all the gains that they make. And when things are bad, it's not like, a, it's not like a casino where, you know, if things are bad, you, you pay, you don't pay. The Federal Reserve comes in and helps you out. So this is how we have created the unequal economy. You know, Thomas Piketty wrote a doorstopper book saying that this is an inevitable result of capitalism. I would say no, this is the inevitable result of the sorts of policies being followed by the Federal Reserve and following the Federal Reserve by other central banks. It is their policies that have brought us to this point where uh, inequality is so astronomical.
Jeff Bezos makes whatever it is, billions of dollars within, you know, a few days of trading. This is the kind of economy in which we live. And it also leads this uh, government uh, intrusion into the markets. Uh, also leads to something, this phenomenon known as the zombification or these zombie corporations. Yes. We often see, it, especially with the Occupy movement of uh, 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 2000 aughts, the, the fight against capitalism. How, what, how much does what our economic system has come to resemble now, how much of that can really be called capitalism at all? This is a very, very interesting point. Now, this is where, you know, I mentioned that the Federal Reserve has in the last round, that is to say since March and April, it has actually been buying up the bonds and equity of uh, corporations or, or the debt of corporations is buying up corporate debt. Now, this is something the Federal Reserve has never done before. And essentially what it represents is a form of socialization or nationalization of the sector. But if you remember back in the um, uh, to, uh, in the aftermath of 2008, in a number of Western countries, also government stepped in and had to bail out a lot of companies. But these companies were bailed out and sometimes they were even they were not just bailed out. They were actually they had to be taken into public ownership. But. Taking them into public ownership did not imply any kind of social control. The governments essentially gave capitalists money in order to run things as they had run them before without having to pay for any of their mistakes or anything. So essentially, the government is saying that we are going to nationalize you, but not in the public interest, but in the interest of the private capitalist. Essentially, that's so essentially you have now a, an extremely cozy relationship between the state and private capital in which the state state is supporting private capital without controlling it. Yeah, well, we saw this most famously with the auto industry uh, and uh, President Obama stepping in. But then they said those were loans and that the, uh, it's often been said that the auto industry, the American auto industry, uh, repaid with interest those loans uh, of the crash of 2008. So what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing? Um, well, the auto industry may have repaid its loans, but the question is now whether these corporations, I mean, first of all, the auto industry repaid the loans, but in an era of extremely low interest rates. OK, yeah. I mean, you would have to examine the terms what's happening now is that the Federal Reserve, not the government, but the Federal Reserve is buying up these uh, corporate debt, essentially giving corporations money in a relatively low interest rate environment. But it is giving corporations money in a context where their own business model is in crisis. Okay, uh, are they going to continue to be able to do the business that they are doing? This is this is the question. Uh, will they continue to make money? What are they going to pay back the money with? And remember, if a debt cannot be paid, it will not be paid. So essentially, it may once again amount to giving money this time, not to financial corporations, but to directly uh, uh, real economy corporations. And uh, so, so so we we are now taken one step further of the Federal Reserve actually stepping into and essentially giving money to directly to, to, to productive enterprises rather than merely to financial corporations, whether it is airlines or um, other such uh, 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 outfits, you know, private on corporations. So, this, so in that sense, we are no longer looking at anything like capitalism. If by that you mean a system in which firms compete with one another, some of them go bust if they make the wrong decisions, etc., because they're not being allowed. They are, as you say, they are zombies. They are the undead. 
and, and this is the kind of economy we're looking at. So the real question in my mind emerges is that the extent to which we do this, um, we have to ask ourselves, why not exert social control? Not least because think of all the ills of the old order that have become clear. The inequality has become clear. The racial and gender dimensions of inequality have become clear. The um, socially inequitous uh, 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 corporate structures have become clear. They're extremely anti-green, you know, uh, uh, the uh, unsustainable uh, exploitation of resources, etc. The problem with factory farming has become clear. All of these things are clear. Why not? Uh, uh, sorry about that. A company so, uh, uh, this nationalization with social control over this in order to turn our economies into ecologically sustainable, equal, prosperous um, economies which create a broad-based prosperity, not just a, a narrow prosperity for a few people. Well, I, I can. I, I'm getting as worked up, I think, as your dog is there too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Radhika Desai. She is a scholar, educator, author, and editor. She is too director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group and a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. She also serves as co-editor with Alan Freeman of the Geopolitical Economy book series with Manchester University Press and the Future of Capitalism book series with Pluto Press. Her many essays, uh, primarily on the topics of political economy, culture, and nationalism, can be found uh, at, among other places, CanadianDimensions.com, uh, where right now what we're discussing today is her multi-week seven-part series, What is to be Done?, a manifesto for politics amid the pandemic and beyond. Well, Radhika, uh, there's another form of uh, an economic model that's doing actually still quite well and uh, overtaking the, the traditional, I'll say, uh, American capitalist uh, model that has uh, run roughshod for the last 40 years over us. Do you want to describe a little bit about what China is doing differently and some of its uh, other um, uh uh, satellites, uh, I'll use the word advisedly, sure. and, yes. and how they are managing in this uh, strange time we find ourselves in. Well, that's a, another very good question. So let me uh, take one step backward first. I mean, you know, uh, basically uh, uh, what has happened in, well, you know, we are told that this is somehow the Chinese virus, etc. All this kind of crap is being trotted out by Western leaders and, and opinion makers and so on. In reality, yes, okay, there was a first outbreak in China. We still don't know enough to say anything about the actual origins of the virus. But the, the alacrity with which the Chinese acted in uh, shutting down the city, shutting down the province, isolating it from the rest of China. And then within that uh, 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 shutdown area, they essentially managed to respond with the speed and intensity that was necessary to essentially stop the further spread of the virus. And for that, essentially what you need is what one would call a, 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 um, a track trace uh, isolate and support model, which means you 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 find out where who is infected, you trace all their contacts, you take all these people, isolate them from their context, allow them to recover, treat them in isolation, and then once they are better, return them to the community. And all of this requires a level of organization, which basically, Chris, 
our societies have lost. What do we have instead? We have a give as much money to big corporations as you can in order to overcome this crisis model of dealing with the pandemic. And it's clearly not working. Look at what's happening in the United States. Look at even in Canada. I mean, in Canada, I have to say that uh, our discourse about uh, the pandemic is so self-congratulatory. But on the international league tables, we are among the worst performers. Uh, less good performers in terms of how well we have dealt with the pandemic. What's going on in Ontario is absolutely crazy. I think in BC, you've been lucky. You've had very good, uh, well, certainly quite decent leadership and you've been able to, to, to deal with the problem. But the other thing is, as well as the China, because it has the shoes on the ground, the shoe leather epidemiology, the actual trained people on the ground to deal with the problem, they have had a relatively limited economic impact from the lockdowns and the shutdowns. By contrast, in the West, we have had to have com comprehensive national shutdowns. This, this sort of thing has never happened before in the history of the universe. And it didn't have to happen. We had loads of warning. We had warnings in the actual uh, spread of epidemics, whether it is Zika or Ebola or various others, avian flu and H1N1 and SARS in 2003. We've had loads of warning that such things are happening. Scientists have been warning us that pandemics are becoming internal to our system. And they are internal to our system because on the one hand, our uh, extremely resource intensive model continues to invade more and more land around the, around the world and therefore shrinking the habitat of wild animals who then come into ever closer contact with human beings and with domesticated animals, particularly in the context of factory farms, where there are all these genetically modified animals that are totally the same as one another. So disease among them spreads very fast. So we have all of these interfaces with them. So the, 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 the pandemic has been endogenous in that sense, but we were not prepared to deal with it. Why? Because we cut, cut, cut. Cut, cut. Whatever resilience we may have had, say, 30, 40 years ago, that is certainly not there. And uh, because we don't, we have this, as some people have taken to saying, we have this just-in-time model of production. We have no resilience for the just-in-case something happens. And so we have not had the capacity to deal with this. We do not have the personnel. We do not have the equipment. We do not have uh, the protective equipment. Our doctors, nurses, and frontline workers are dying. It is atrocious that rich countries like Canada, the United States, the UK, etc., should have such a shambolic response to the pandemic. By contrast, the Chinese have the, 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 the equipment, the personnel, etc. And plus, they have actually had the kind of productive economy that we all need to have. In, and one of the key reasons is, on the one hand, they actually have a fair degree of state control of the economy, where there is some somebody sort of saying, well, you know, is everything overall in balance, etc. And this sort of state control also ensured that when in the aftermath of 2008, they lost a lot of markets, they were immediately able to, they turned on a dime to make domestic investment and eventually domestic consumption the driver of their growth. So the Chinese economy has in the last dozen or so years become much more internally oriented. And it could do this because it has a state. It has somebody saying, OK, is everything working? Is everything ticking along well? Does anything need adjustment? Shall we have more of this and less of that, etc.? We don't have any such 
uh, person uh, overseeing it. The only sort of overall planning we have is somebody ensuring that uh, the very rich people, the financial institutions are okay. They continue to make the astronomical sums of money they do without doing much work at all. The second reason why the Chinese economy is doing very well is unlike our economy, they actually control finance. They control finance in, in such a way that finance actually does subserve the needs of the productive economy and does not, as in our sort of situation, become parasitical upon the productive economy and therefore a burden on the productive economy. And this is a burden now that we have to refuse to carry anymore. If there is one thing that we need coming out of this crisis is we have to shake off this burden of the extremely rich, extremely lucrative financial institutions. We say, basta, no more. You cannot prey upon our incomes, whether they are profits of small companies or wages of, of people, etc. You cannot prey upon our incomes anymore. We are going to stop you from doing that. And we are going to have a, a banking system which actually serves the economy and does not um, uh, it does not prey upon the economy. So some version of state control for, for popular welfare rather than state control for financial uh, 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 sector and a controlled financial sector. These are the two things coming out of this we must have because only these two things will also give us all the other things we want. A more green economy, a more just economy, a socially just economy in which income differentials are not so great, etc. And so that's why the Chinese model will work. I'm not saying it's perfect. You and I can sit and criticize it for a number of things, but these two things are what it's getting right. And if we are not taking notes, then it's our own fault if our economy continues to malinger for years and, and even decades from here on. Because, you know, here's the other thing. I think that we are also reaching the end of the road of capitalism itself. The only way in which anything vaguely resembling capitalism can now survive is through state support. And as you know, I called it in my last installment, the uh, I mean, the fourth installment of my series, I call this pseudo philanthropic neoliberalism. So in this model, we are going to, we can look forward to paying big capitalists, loads of money for things they will sell to our state, allegedly to provide to us at low cost or free, but ultimately we'll be paying for all this through our taxes. And they will have risk-free huge profits. And this is how we, this is, this is not capitalism, basically. This is some sort of a, uh, you know, uh, 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 this is some sort of a new form of parasitism, this time upon the state and not on the productive economy. Or very, or maybe a very old one, where it starts to uh, re resemble the the surf, uh, the age Indeed. of surfdom. Yes. Well, Radhika Desai, uh, again, the article series is "What Is to Be Done: A Manifesto for Politics Amid the Pandemic and Beyond." You can find it at CanadianDimensions.com. You just heard Chris Cook of CFUV one hundred one point nine FM at the University of Victoria on the Lekwungen speaking peoples on whose traditional territories the university stands and the Songhees, Esquimo and Wasanic peoples whose historical relations with the land continue to this day. He was speaking with Professor Radhika Desai and her view on what's to be done, a manifesto for politics amid the pandemic and beyond. That brings us to the end of another show. Please join us again for the final chapter of our series devoted to the COVID crisis. 
You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to the show every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download the show as a podcast from the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on the program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.